The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome, everyone. We're finishing up. A, I'm finishing up a series of talks, uh, basically reintroducing the practice for all of us, myself included. And one of the things I think we all find useful is coming back to the basics. And more and more we realize what we're trying to do is very simple. It's not our habit, but it's not complicated what we're trying to do in practice. So tonight I want to talk about, the uh, last few weeks I've been talking about practice in terms of these four things that I mentioned in the guided set. Recognizing that this is being known, that imminent act of the mind recognizing not so much this is happening, but this is being known, the experience is being known, which requires an acceptance and an interest, and over time, greater greater degree of non-attachment, the mind not clinging, not reacting, not struggling with the experience. And tonight I want to talk how this can, this activity, what we call, just generally we call it mindfulness practice, it's in a sense a misuse of the word mindfulness, which has in the Buddhist tradition a more technical meaning, but it's in the culture, it's, it sort of represents the whole path, which it's okay. You know, if you're going to choose one of the Buddhist technical terms to describe or to represent the path, mindfulness is probably as good as any. But this path of awakening, this path of mindfulness, it really can also be something that we love. And actually, it's nice to release that devotional energy. Now, we have all kinds of, in our culture, all kinds of rituals, you know, things we make a big deal of. I didn't see the opening and closing ceremony of the Olympics. Some of you maybe cut that on the TV. But I understand that one of the things these days is for each nation to try to outdo the previous, you know, sponsor of the Olympics and just this amazing ritual of light and song and who knows what else they do. Um, kind of making it a big deal. And in a way, there's a lot of this in our culture, you know, just these rituals at the beginning of ball games or at the end of a ball game. The Emmys or the Oscars or, you know, your family rituals around Thanksgiving or Christmas or your other holy days or holidays. But what's more relevant to us is to actually notice what the heart really, really cares about, really finds protecting, a refuge, something that's actually worthy of respect. Some of you know that once a quarter we get together on Sunday morning here at the center and we recite the traditional refuges and precepts together as a community. So we did this last Sunday, did it this last Sunday. And this is just one of the sort of few ceremonies, forms that we follow here at the center that comes right out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition, used in other Buddhist traditions as well, where we take refuge in the Buddha, for example. We take refuge in this 
awakened state of mind. Even if we don't fully understand it, we do fully understand the opposite state of mind, right? We know what it's like when the mind is in a funk, disconnected, tending to struggle with things, not caring. So we know we don't want to take refuge in that because that doesn't work very well in life. And to some degree, all of us understand, you know, what it's like when the mind is balanced, is clearly recognizing, oh, it's like this. When it's deeply accepting, allowing, not that we want it to be this way. Deeply accepting means it understands it's already this way now. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't the heart, why wouldn't the mind and body all allow it to be? Because it's already this way. And why wouldn't the mind, the heart, be interested? This is the moment. This is my life right now. There's no past. There's no future. This is it. Right? This moment, the way that it is, this is it. It makes sense the mind would be interested. And it also, slowly over time, begins to sort of arise in the mind that how impersonal it all is. Whether you're observing the movement of the mind itself, you know, the movement of thought or emotion, or observing the sensations in the body, or observing visual experience, auditory experience. It just starts to be clearer and clearer how much everything is just nature unfolding. What we say, what we think, how we react, what other people are saying and thinking and reacting. Everything is just the expression of these innumerable and in a sense unknowable causes and conditions all interacting, tumbling forward endlessly and presenting itself. And the mind, which is inherently sensitive, knows this. But it also can realize how impersonal it is. And so, if you haven't been coming the last two weeks, we've been using this simple acronym just to help us remember through daily life and also through our, during our formal sitting times that the practice is as simple as recognizing the R in RAIN, recognizing this is being known, this is how it is, and to sustain that recognition, the mind, the heart, needs to keep accepting, allowing, and being interested in it. That's really how we stay right in the present moment, stay right with things as they are, is through the process of accepting, allowing, being interested, being alert, awake. If we lose the alertness, the interest, the mind will slide into dullness. If we lose the acceptance, the mind will slide into reactivity, trying to control things, trying to get what it wants, get rid of what it doesn't want. So in order to sustain that clear recognition, this is being known, we need the acceptance and the interest. And with enough continuity, then the insight into non-attachment, non-identification, naturally arises in the mind. The mind goes from its oppressive, self-centered dramas, whatever particular self-centered story, drama it's caught up in, 
But in observing and recognizing this is how it is, and accepting and being interested with some continuity, all of a sudden that story just doesn't make sense. It has to be abandoned because it doesn't align. The self-centered drama doesn't actually align with a clear view, clear awakened experience. So the mind abandons it. And the view, you know, the non-view really, of non-attachment, non-identification, just nature being nature. So this is the whole path. And to the degree we start having experiences with this, with the mind in balance, these four qualities alive in the mind, in the heart, as we're living formal meditation out in the world, then you'll notice a kind of gratitude, or you could say a devotional quality in the heart. And, you know, you want to put your forehead down on the ground or, you know, you, whatever, whatever your sort of conditioned expression of gratitude is, you want to do it. In the same way that, you know, people who have other sort of religious experiences are moved. You know, the heart is moved. When it sees something beautiful, our heart is moved. You know, if you're rounding the corner in the woods and, you know, you see a mother deer, doe giving birth to a fawn, you know, you're probably going to be moved just there, you know, 30 feet away or whatever you might stumble across. In a sense, it blows our minds. It, it blows our mind, blows out of our mind any self-centered drama. You know, and the heart, the mind, sort of enters this other space, this awakened space, where we're not struggling neurotically with the conditions of the moment. The body's released, the mind is relaxed, it's accepting, the mind is completely alert. We realize these are not contradictory states, relaxation or acceptance and alertness, interest, but they actually go really well together. Sort of, this is the balance the mind is meant to have in a sense. This is where we feel, it feels right, with a capital R, you know, when there's a lot of energy, a lot of alertness, interest, and a lot of relaxation and acceptance and trust. And so relative to our normal existence, where we're not really recognizing it's like this, we're lost in thought, and we're not really accepting, we're struggling, and we're not really interested, we're exhausted, we're bored, we're thinking, we're, you know, we want it to be something else, so we're imagining that. And it all feels very personal, so it's not... So when we're in that state, it isn't worthy of devotion. It's worthy of complaining and, you know, depression and uh, wanting things to be other than they are, wanting a different kind of life. And, it, you know, it's that exact frustration that leads us, sometimes at least, to Dharma practice, to this path of awakening that was taught by the Buddha. We get inspired. There's got to be another way. In a sense, you know, when we're not practicing rain, recognizing this is how it is, accepting, being interested, realizing non-attachment, non-identification, when we're not doing that, in a sense we're sinking, sinking into our little box, our narrow 
oppressive box, whatever particular story the mind tends to slide into. You know, we have our top ten boxes we tend to inhabit. You know, whether it's the oh poor me box, life isn't fair, or whether it's the, you know, I can do it box, and sort of problem solving, and I'll ch- tackle that, and then I'll tackle this, and someday I'll be, it will all be right, you know, and everything will be straight, there won't be anything left crooked, and I'll have sort of white homes with no dust, <laughs> hair that doesn't ever need to be cut, nails that don't need to be clipped, it'll be just right, you know, like today. And the moisture won't have to fall from the sky, it will just come up from the ground, so we'll just have clear days, but everything will stay nice and green. All these dramas about, you know, perfection, and they're all very oppressive. So when we're not practicing, we're constructing, the mind is going to be constructing something, some idea, some view, and that view will be oppressive. So we're sinking into some oppressive state. And in the course of one sit, you'll probably notice you're going back and forth between various ways of oppressing the mind, the mind oppressing itself, and various moments, periods where the mind is liberating itself. Liberating itself through the abandonment of what's oppressive, the letting go of what's oppressive. And that, you'll, you'll learn that that movement from oppression to non-oppression, from being burdened, the mind burdening itself through its own activity, to the mind ceasing that activity that's burdensome, and then it feels liberated from that activity that was burdensome, you'll see that that movement is to be respected. It's like sacred or holy or whatever. You know, we don't use these words very much in the Buddhist tradition. They tend to be taken and idealistic and turned into something. But the process itself is wholesome. And so it's liberating, it's freeing. In the same way that obsessing about something that's unproductive hurts, and uh, we wouldn't wish it on anybody. So why not, you know, it doesn't hurt, especially if you're a devotional type, it doesn't hurt to unleash some of this energy, this devotional energy, to be really grateful, grateful of having people that are interested in this practice like you are, grateful for these pragmatic teachings that generations of women and men have passed down generation by generation, grateful that you have enough health, enough time in your life to actually apply, direct yourself to these teachings, develop them to some degree, share them in some natural, organic way with those around you, whether you ever talk about it or not, it's not so important, just modeling being more alert, more accepting, more clearly recognizing that it's like this now. I mean, we all like to be around those people that when there's a crisis, you know, that person that's able to say, okay, it's like this now. This is how it is. It's already this way. 
you know, and to be really interested in, and in that sort of nimble place of being relaxed and interested, well, we can do this, or we can do that. If we do this, this might happen. If we do that, that might happen. What do you think? Just sort of cut right through the emotion and the mind, mind's addiction to the attachment to the emotions and the reactivity. And just sort of being direct. Like uh, Sh- Sh- Shantideva, this famous Buddhist saint, this Buddhist monk from over a thousand years ago in India, said, you know, if we have a crisis, have a problem, if there's something you can do, then do it. If there's nothing you can do, well, there's nothing you can do. But in either case, there's no need for attachment or for worry or for reactivity. If there's something you can do, do it. If there's nothing you can do or nothing that makes sense to do, then there's nothing that makes sense to do. But why the tightness? Why the reactivity? Why creating, why oppress the mind or create a burden? What's that about? So to the degree we see that there's a path to not creating that burden, having the life, having that the Buddha calls the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, So we have these, you know, we're going to be blown this way and that way. People will like us and people won't like us. We'll feel really healthy and then we'll be sick. Things keep changing. And through all of that change, we just do what needs to be done. If there's something to do that's appropriate to do, that isn't harmful to do, well, we should do that. If there's nothing we can do that isn't harmful, well, then there's nothing to do. But no matter where we are in those eight worldly winds, what is the value in getting tight? What is the value in the mind oppressing itself, being worried? I'm not saying that our mind isn't going to worry. (coughs) But when our mind does something that is oppressive, it would be nice to recognize it. Oh, this is like this now. This is being known. Self-hatred is being known and accepting, and being interested in it, and not taking it personal. So we can always walk this path of liberation, no matter where we are in that, as long as we remember. That's it. That's the one thing we need. We need to remember, and we need to have some kind of faith, or devotion, or respect. Like, it's a value. This movement towards recognizing, accepting, being interested, non-attachment, that it's holy. I'm so grateful that I have some understanding of this way of being, and that it's always available. I don't need any special equipment to practice recognizing, oh, it's like this now. This mind state, body state is being known. And to practice sustaining that recognition through the process of acceptance and being interested in it and realizing a deeper release, the deeper release of non-attachment, just allowing things to be. And allowing things to be, that non-attachment is also not being attached to the body, the mind's response. 
So the personality isn't being suppressed or repressed, you know. No, not attachment means you can't respond. Well, that would, that's a huge attachment that we can't be a human being with personality. Because that's wrong. So non-attachment doesn't mean non-existence. Non-attachment means we're taking the self, the self-centeredness, out of the equation. So RAIN, as a practice, which is really this whole practice of awakening, this whole path of awakening, it's really about allowing nature to be nature. And this is nature. And whatever wisdom we have, however well-developed the wisdom is, the intelligence, the skill is in this particular mind, it is what it is. And to sort of uh, get out of the way is the best thing we can do because wisdom, that pattern of the mind that uh, understands what's skillful and unskillful, it's sort of a self-learning process. So... If it, even if it thinks, well, this is skillful, and then it turns out that it wasn't skillful, if we're practicing, we'll learn that lesson, and that will be incorporated, it will become part of the wisdom that continues forward. So the sense of, I've got to be wise, I've got to run my life, I've got to be my personality, actually, it's just inefficiency. There's a great story that uh, Joko Beck, who died recently, one of the great Western teachers, one of the Western matriarchs, she was uh, in charge of the San Diego Zen Center for a long time. And um, she said it's like, you know, you build a, a perfectly fine house, nice windows and doors, and then because you're neurotic, you go ahead and build another perfectly fine house right on top, of that perfectly fine house right around it. So all of a sudden, the perfectly fine house you had becomes really dank and dark because you've got the superstructure all around it. And it doesn't feel good. So we don't have to do that. We can just have the perfectly fine house, which we've always had, which is nature. And But through, you know, the complexity of our mind and language and training we get from our culture, we get neurotic and we think we've got to do our life, live our life. So to unhook from that habit, we got to give, you know, from this neurotic point of doing our life and, and all the rigidity and all the discomfort that comes from it, we need some instructions to get out of it. Most of the instructions we give ourselves to fix our life is building another superstructure. So we need a very particular set of instructions that will give the neurotic mind something to do, but won't be the cause for the mind building another superstructure, another weight. So what do we give the mind to do? Well, we ask the mind to keep recognizing moment by moment that this is how it is, and to accept it, and to be interested in it, and not to attach. And this sort of gives the neurotic mind something to do so it's no longer doing what it was doing. Worrying, planning, complaining, blaming, wondering, fantasizing, hoping, dreaming. On and on like that. Once, as it said, at least, the Buddha was practicing late at night 
and a celestial being came down from one of the heaven realms, like an angel. That's, that's a story. Does it, I don't know, it's not true. So we can just imagine there are beings on very subtle, beautiful realms or levels. Anyway, this one came down, wanting some instructions from the Buddha. And he said, or she said, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. The Buddha often used that image of a flood to represent the sort of habit energy of the mind, the neurotic, fear-based, greed-based, deluded-based tendencies of the mind. How did you get beyond that, you know, the identification with those qualities of mind? And the Buddha said, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. And then the deva said, "What? how did you cross over without pushing forward and without staying in place? And the Buddha responded, when I pushed forward, <coughs> I was whirled about. You know? When I tried to be free, I got whirled about. That's why we want to be free, but in wanting to be free, we keep building another superstructure, another problem. We do this with Buddhist practice as we do with everything else. You know, we get on one of my first sort of spiritual things I did back in 1981 is I got into macrobiotics. Some of you maybe did that too. And it was really a powerful thing for me to sort of take that on. It just sort of changed my life in, a, in certain ways. But it was just that, you know, it became its own weight after a while, you know, to have to eat in that way. When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. You know, when I tried to fix my life, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, when we give up, I sank. So I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. So we need to give something for the mind to do that's not a self-centered drama. And this process of just recognizing this is how it is and accepting and being interested and non-attached, that is the set, that particular activity that isn't pushing forward and isn't standing still. You know, as you recognize in your own life, this allegiance, this deepening allegiance you have to awakening, to this process that Recently, we've been describing as R-A-I-N, recognizing this is how it is, accepting, being interested, non-attachment. When you start feeling this allegiance to awakening, it is useful to, um, in this relative realm, to uh, create reminders. You know, it isn't silly or weird or inappropriate for people to have altars in their home with a Buddha or whatever for you reminds you of awakening. You know, that image is, for some people, it just it isn't like about this person that's going to save me. It's a reminder of the path. There is this path. There is this way towards freedom, which is to be alert to be interested, to be accepting, to be recognizing this is how it is, to see things come and go as nature, without attachment. And this is, you know, we can, each of us, it has to be pragmatic. We have to create the reminders that actually remind us. 
not not the reminders that remind that are good for other people, but what will help you remember as you go through the day? Because that's the problem. Like I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh said once, one of his talks or writings, the real enemy is forgetfulness. That's the real enemy. In fact, the word sati, which is translated to be mindfulness, it actually, it means to remember. So that's what I said at the beginning of the talk, that the technical definition of mindfulness is more remembering, like keeping the moment in mind, keeping the way it is, the way things are, keeping that in mind, not forgetting this is how it is. That's really the technical meaning of mindfulness that the Buddha made a big deal about. And he really emphasized, in fact, his last words, apamada, means vigilance or this sort of uh, wholeheartedness, like keeping it in mind, not forgetting. And he likened earlier in one of his talks, he said, you know, mindfulness, keeping the way it is in mind, is the path to the deathless, to freedom. Those who are negligent, those who aren't keeping the present moment in mind, are as if already dead, because they're in their box, they're lost in their thought, thoughts of one sort or another. Missing life. There's another discourse I wanted to read tonight, uh, one of my favorites. This one's translated by Andy Olensky, who's come to Common Ground a few times, and is the senior scholar at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, a wonderful institution. If you ever get out to the East Coast in Massachusetts, they have all kinds of wonderful programs there and a wonderful website, too. And this is a Buddhist talk that the title is The Thorn in Your Heart. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Imagine the Buddha saying this. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. He didn't see it out there. He found the thorn lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and settles down. Who here has crossed over desires, the world's gone so hard to get past? He does not grieve, she does not mourn. His stream is cut, she is all unbound. What went before, let go of that. All that's to come, have none of it. Don't hold on, don't hold on to what's in between and you'll wander fully at peace. For whom there is no eye-making, all throughout the body and mind, and who grieves not for what is not, is undefeated in the world. 
For whom there is no, this is mine, nor anything like, that is theirs, not even finding selfness, he or she does not grieve at, I have nothing. And another uh, time monk from the last century had a great way of sum, summing this up. He said something like, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. And like the world, you could just broaden this out, the world, our life, is heavy only when we try to lift it, only when we try to own it, make it ours. But being nature, letting the body-mind be nature through the process of recognizing and accepting and being wholehearted, being interested and non-attached, that's the path to freedom. And we will have the life we're going to have. You know, it's guaranteed our life will not be perfect. <laughs> Is there ever been a human life that was perfect? It's not going to be perfect. And, you know, in some of our lives, there will be more pain than in other people's lives. But not wanting to have the life that we have, you know, not wanting to have the particular genetic code that we have, or the particular circumstance that we have, you know, where we're living, who we're with. That rejection of the life that is being had right now is just making this life heavy. The life that we actually have is being oppressed by the denial, the resistance, the aversion, the wishing it weren't that way that we project onto the life we have. So it's not about resignation. When you have moments of just being nature, you will feel a fullness, a joy, a love, a wisdom that you recognize as, as what you've always been looking for, so to speak. I'll leave it here so we have time. It'd be nice to hear from people just your own experiences of gratitude for this path of awakening, however ordinary, don't feel like it needs to be sort of have lights and firecrackers and stuff. But your own, you know, how has gratitude arisen for you? How do you keep remembering that you do, in fact, respect this path? How do you keep it in mind so that you can keep beginning again, keep coming back to it? What seems to get in the way? Like, what's your experience of doubt? Or maybe feelings you're not good enough? Other people can do it, but not me. So these would be nice things to share. And of course, any questions that seem relevant. So what comes to mind? Yes. Hi, Mary. Yeah, it's a good question. It's the kind of question that gets asked a lot, as it should, because it's a subtle place. Passivity, when it's a, when passivity is coming out of a fixed notion, I shouldn't act. I don't know what I'm doing. That involves sort of a, an ego stance, you know, arising out of fear, arising out of greed, or arising out of 
delusion, then that passivity will be experienced as unskillful and uh, heavy because the mind is projecting something like, I can't do anything. But in the same way, <clears throat> activity, when it's coming out of some projection, coming out of fear, coming out of greed, coming out of delusion, like some compulsion, I have to act. I'm afraid of stagnation. I have to keep doing. That's also oppressive. So we want to we wanna find a place where we're not neurotically frozen and passive and not neurotically doing. And some of us have more of the tendency to act out our neurotic tendencies by not doing, and the other half of us have a tendency to act out our neurotic tendencies by doing. Both are equally painful and cause probably cause those around us suffering too. So the path, you know, as we develop the path, it's going to look different for some for different people. People have a tendency to be neurotically passive as they develop their practice, they're going to find more and more moments where they're being skillfully active. You know, they're they're not following the fear and being frozen, but they're just taking chances because that's how that neurotic tendency begins to loosen up. It begins to express itself by seeing that you're doing something that you don't you normally do. You're talking in a crowd and you normally don't do that. You're calling the shots and it's usually your partner who calls the shots. You know, so that may be what you see in the awakening process if you have a tendency towards passivity. If you have a tendency towards overactivity, neurotically attached to activity, then as you develop your practice, you might notice periods of time where there's a strong contentment and a willingness to let, in a sense, life pass by. Just happy to just let things be. Not needing to pick up the book even to read. I don't need to read more about Buddhism, you know. I'm practicing what the Buddha said. Why do I need to read about it? You know, this sort of, oh, i got to go on a retreat. Why? I'm practicing right now. You know, so this compulsion to do can be really neurotic. And so if it is, you just notice a lot of space. And then if you do something, it won't be that you have to do it. You're doing it because it's like compassion for yourself or some other being that you're helping them. You're helping yourself by taking care, you know, feeding yourself or whatever you might do. So that's really where we want to go so that our action or non-action, and of course non-action is just action, like just sitting still on the couch. That's action, you know, getting up and voting, that's action. So there's really no such thing. As long as we're alive, we're acting in the world. And the question is, is that action neurotic? Is it causing weight? and suffering, stress, or is it liberated action, you know, where it's it's all about joy and love and compassion and wisdom and the lightness of being when it's not contaminated with some self-centered drama. So then we don't have to have an agenda like what awakening looks like, because it's going to look differently for different personality types, how our mind has been conditioned. Somebody takes on the practice and get some momentum, and they're just like a busy beaver doing all kinds of things, starting meditation centers and, you know, doing it. Other people, they develop the practice, and they're content to sit at home and do garden and take care of their immediate family or, you know, whatever. 
watch clouds float by. But they could be just as much a powerful force for good. Because we live in this, we, we're all living in the same soup. And so when anybody is in that wise, spacious, loving place, it affects all of us. Even if we don't know they're over there, it still affects us. At least that's my sense of it. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Yeah, Uttara. Uttara, and it seems to me Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly the question you want to ask yourself. And so, you know, like when the monks and nuns were cruising along in their practice and having a lot of ease because of the development of the practice, and maybe they had good karma so that the conditions in their life were very favorable. They weren't in poverty. They weren't living in a war zone. Their body was relatively happy. The kids liked them. You know, things like that. Then, you know, he might say, well, I'd like you to contemplate death. You know, so when you meditate, I want you to contemplate that this body will die. And after a few days, this is what the body will look like. And after a few weeks, this is what the body will look like. To just see if there's anything that the heart is afraid of. Or you can get involved. You know, like, you can experiment. Um, like, one of the jokes is, you know, when you think your practice is going well, go visit your mother. You know? <laughs> or, if your mother's not alive, go visit one of your kids. Because generally, those people that we're closest to, they tend to trigger all of, if there is any unfinished business in our practice, tends to come up in certain situations. So if you feel like you might be fooling yourself, you can just check. Just bring up what's not comfortable to bring up. And notice if you have space, kind of equanimity, even with that. You know, and also traditionally the monks and nuns would eventually become abbots or abbesses, you know, of the monastery, or you have teaching responsibilities, so they can't just be practicing alone in the tranquil forest, you know, they sort of have to go into the busy city and give Dharma talks, or do this or do that, and that's, you know, more stressful. So that's what I would look at, not in a neurotic sense, because that fear that you're not doing enough might be just neurotic. It may be an old tendency of the mind of always pushing yourself onward. And so you just have to look with real honesty whether it's neurotic or whether it's a wise voice sort of saying, Honey, you need to look over here. Would you be okay if this happened? And this is one of the advantages of having imagination is when we are feeling a lot of joy and calm, then we can bring up, we can bring up the suffering in the world and see how the heart can relate to that and, and respond to that. You know, how does the heart want to respond? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Uttara. Any other thoughts? Yes. Yeah. 
And those things are really lend themselves because they're the mind sees them as beautiful. That's easy to recognize because they're so beautiful. And uh, the non-attachment, you know, it's nice because you know how fragile. It's just a matter of a few days when the tree comes into its peak color, and you know, it's inevitable. And we can't grasp it. It just doesn't make sense. Wanting it to be last to last forever, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Bob. Um, the gratitude for practice. Uh, I, I, I had for last week, uh, one day, there was a job where it was uh, uncomfortable. It was very, very difficult. Uh, Monday night, I went down to Iowa for But so Monday night was spent um, in the moon, drinking non alcoholic beer. Uh, and then the next day, all the way from one side of Iowa to the next, my car is going to a funeral for the father of the And so, just a beautiful accident about it that I don't like. Um, and then um, I landed at work today, back in a couple of days. Just that sort of from one end to the next. And the practice was, you know, it was a horrible day. They absolutely horrible. Um, but there was at least a little bit of um, non attachment. You know, not, not, don't get an A on this. And then I came home, and, and the temptation was to, you know, burden the Mary with all this. I mean, um, Thanks for sharing that, Bob. Other thoughts? Or gratitude looks in your life? Or questions about the practice? Yeah, Paul. Yeah, it would be nice to hear. Well, I'll share a few things, and maybe a few other people will too, but 
uh, things I've done in the past and I still do is I'll write a little note, you know, whatever it might be, just a little reminder, and I'll put it in my pocket. And every time my hand's in my pocket, I'll, I'll remember it. And I also, I punctuate the day with um, sort of putting down the load. And like where I sit in my office, I get, you know, I have the opportunity to looking outside. So every time I look outside, it's like that image of space reminds the mind of the internal experience of space and sort of the unformed. Our life at work, or generally, is formed. You know, it's linear, it's doing this and doing that, and we're here, we want to get somewhere, or there's, there's this here, we want to get rid of it. And so it has that sort of structure of doing and becoming. But we can find ways to remember the unformed. And the more you practice, the more you have a daily practice, the mind will uh, more easily go back to that unformed state. And the whole idea is to, initially, is to be able to flip back and forth, where you can be totally engaged in this relative world of problems that need to be solved, and egos that need to be massaged, and all of this stuff, and your own emotional stuff that gets triggered, of course, and just dealing with it as best we can, being as skillful as we can with it, and, in a sense, either stepping back or seeing it as empty of self. Not that it's not true, but it's not a problem. The messiness, the complexity, the diversity, it isn't a problem. It's just what it is. And so to be able to go back and forth to where we are that sort of ordinary ego-based person, and, it, and I don't want this to happen, and it's not fair, and I feel betrayed, and, and that's okay too. So just different reminders around, having them around, punctuating your day. Even little naps can be useful because when we're tight about something, have a big agenda in our life, it doesn't make sense to lie down. It makes sense to do something, to make another call. So when you just put on the load physically, like actually relax, so you get in your car before you immediately start it, you just sit for 30 seconds. It's amazingly difficult to do that. So put a little sticker on your, your steering wheel that, you know, just ask so no one thinks you're weird. Well, that's weird enough that, you know, sit. Or R for relax or something, but just to stay put for a little bit. And when you get home, instead of immediately checking the mail or checking the voicemail, you know, just to sit down for a minute. And I'm not even talking about meditating. I'm just talking about putting down the load. Because that moment, that two minutes of relaxation is directly uh, contradicts the neurotic doing that is driving the mind. So laughing can be that way too. You know, people who can sort of be silly about something in the midst of activity. So there's all kinds of ways that we're challenging the neurotic drama in the mind, whatever it might be, you know, whatever ways. And maybe other people have some thoughts too. A couple minutes left. Any suggestions for your life? Yeah. My name's John. Um, something I've been doing recently is just kind of build that, you know, mindfulness in my life is when I'm in the car by myself, I just turn the radio off as much as I like to know what's going on in the world, just the weather, um, just to be really present behind the wheel. 
I've seen numerous cars go through a recession while those drivers are down. Two thirty minutes go up, and they realize the glass is like that big and it's going up and up and up. That's why, unfortunately, you don't see no accidents. But anyway, it's something. Yeah, great. Thanks, John. Graham, you want to add one last thing before we end? Yeah, when you said um, humor made me think of, at my work, I think it, the entire office has been really sort of in a state of frenzy for the last month or so because of this new law. Everybody's just freaking out. We got, you know, we got an influx of money to do stuff, which is exciting, but also stressful. But we all have, I think, a lot of the same anxieties tied up with our egos of doing our job right. And I think in my better moments, I've been able to, like, with another person, another colleague, laugh at my own failure. Yeah. Which so loosens up them too because they're like, oh yeah, I did that and I was anxious about the fact that I've done that, but it's not, a, you know, we made a mistake, but it's not the end of the world. So to be able to sort of laugh at, at myself, I think, has been positive for others as well. Yeah, it's a real gift in a way. Yeah, that's a nice way, nice place to end. Just that uh, the release of that burden of having to be perfect and that the kind of seeing the imperfection not as a problem, but of course natural and, and even humorous. And it's kind of enlivening that we're all imperfect. You know, it's a real relief. And like Graham suggests, it's a real gift to do that for others. You know, like if we can be, if we're willing to be relaxed being imperfect, it's like giving permission to everybody else to be imperfect. So let's just leave it there. Take a few breaths together to end the evening. Letting go of the words. And maybe having some feelings of gratitude for the community, for this path of practice. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.